And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two, two, two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves for, to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it grew late, and his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. The word of the Lord. Uh, and if you're staying in the service, would you rise with me and we'll affirm together our trust in God's word. Let's say it together. All flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. I think it would be helpful if you keep your Bibles open because we'll be referring to various verses in this somewhat longer passage. Um, there are many ways we can describe our relationship with God. And I think we probably all have our favorite ones. Uh, for example, for me, I, I, being an adopted child of God is meaningful to me. I tend to think of my relationship with Him as an adopted child. That's very biblical, and for many of us, it's, it's very touching. Uh, we can think about us, ourselves as, as a treasured possession of God. That's a, that's a great way to think that God is, values us and, and redeemed us by the blood of His Son. You can think of yourself as, as self, yourself as creation, being a creature, and being new creation in Christ. That's a good way to think about our relationship with God, too. But the one I want to consider today is another richly represented theme and that is that we are His servants. We are the servants of the Lord. You see it all over the Scriptures. Applied to Israel and the church, the apostles often talk about themselves as servants of the Lord. And our passage begins in just this way. Jesus is sending out these 12 apostles to participate in His mission. This is how it begins. He has already called them. They've been training with Him for some time. And now He's sending them out to do His work. 
And we are called to do the same. We are sent people. We are called to do His will. We're called to obey His commands. We are called to pursue His interests. So this very much applies to us because we too are His servants. And in the context of Christian discipleship, which is about following Jesus, is walking in step with Him, is doing what He does, imitating Him, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means that not only are we called to do what He tells us to do, but we are called to do what He does. So we think of our, our life with God and our serving Christ is not just doing what He tells us to do, but being who He is and, and living the way He lives and, and doing things that He's done. Which means that the biggest thing we need to understand to be a good servant of the Lord is what the Lord is like. If we are to follow Him in our service, if we are to do what He does, then we need to really understand who He is so we could be better servants of Him. And of course, that's what we've been doing by looking at the Gospel of Mark. We're trying to get just a clearer picture of Jesus and see Him as He is, as He's revealed himself to us. So I want to do that this morning. I want to look at these four episodes. We have four parts to this passage. I'll look at each one of them, and I'm not going to tell you everything about this text, okay? There's so much happening here. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to pull out one trait of Jesus from each episode. I want to see something about Jesus from each episode, and then I want to relate it to us so something about him and something about us from each episode. So if you are taking notes, we'll have four points here, largely following the outline of this passage. We will look at the Lord's authority from the first few verses, the sending out of the 12. And then we'll look at the Lord's care from the feeding of the 5,000. And then in the walking on the water miracle, we will see God's glory, the Lord's glory. And finally, in the execution of John the Baptist, we will see the Lord's grace. So his authority, his care, his glory, and his grace. Now, if you noticed, I've switched it around a little bit, okay? My order of the outline is different from the order of Mark's account. I think I have a really good reason to do that. Now, you may remember in chapter 3, we talked about a, a literary device that I called a Markin sandwich. Do you remember that? And how many of you are thinking about an actual sandwich right now? Okay. Thank you, Mark. Mark, thinking about Markin sandwich, yes. Mark does this thing several times through, through the gospel. We see it in chapter 3, we see it in chapter 5, and now in our chapter here, where he he is talking about something, and then he, he interrupts that story by inserting another story into it. So you sort of have the sandwich of the two pieces of bread and, and meat or cheese in between. He, he, for example, in chapter 3, we have two interactions of Jesus with his family. First, his family comes and accuses him of being out of his mind, and then later his family comes to him and he says, no, this is my family, the people who, who obey the word of God. But in between, there's this whole story about the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. And then the second sandwich is in chapter 5, where you have the healing of the woman with a bleeding disorder, which is actually in the midst of the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. So you have the beginning of 
somebody comes to Jesus and says, come heal my daughter. And then it's interrupted by this another miracle, and then it goes back to the story of Jairus' daughter. Now, the reason Mark does that, it's a, it's a literary device, he does it on purpose, is because he wants us to learn something about some significant truth, some significant application by inserting something in the middle and, and contrasting or drawing parallels with, between the two stories. And so if we pay attention, we actually see what the point is based on that middle part, based on the middle part of the sandwich. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to leave that middle part of the sandwich till the very end because I think it actually gives us the key to the whole passage and it actually moves us in a certain direction. So I think we need to be careful not just to see the chronology here but to see the, the literary purpose in the way Mark arranges this material. So our sandwich here is, it begins with Jesus sending out the 12, uh, and this is, this is verses uh, 7 through 13, and then in verse 30, they come back, right? They come back, they report, Jesus asked, telling them to, to get some rest. But in between, we have this flashback to John the Baptist's execution. So it's interesting that Mark deliberately puts that weird story about Herod and John the Baptist that on the surface doesn't seem to have anything to do with the disciples, and yet I think it does. I think it actually opens something to us about the Lord that really helps us serve Him better. So that's the reason why this outline is out of order. Okay, and after this lengthy introduction, okay, we're going to get into the, uh, the, the text. So let's talk about the Lord's authority first. This is verses 7 through 13. Jesus sends out these 12 apostles. He had chosen them. He had trained them. And now they are ready to go out on their own. So he sends them out. He tells them to preach repentance, right? They, they say everybody should repent. They preach the kingdom of God. He, t he gives them authority to, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. So there's kind of these three parts to it. They preach the gospel, call people to repent. They help those who are in need, and they oppose evil and cast out demons. Now, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing, by the way. They're actually doing exactly what Jesus has been doing. And they're doing it on his own authority. He tells them to go and not take anything extra with them. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra money. You just, you just rely on people to welcome you. You can stay for a few days with anyone who welcomes you. Don't be too picky. Just the first place that's offered to you, you stay there. And the point here is that they are to depend on Jesus. Even as they are sent out to do his work on his own authority, they must depend on him to do it. They're not supposed to have uh, these kind of safety uh, features here, that if I run out of money, well, I can borrow money here. No, they're supposed to go directly to him. They're supposed to rely on him to provide for them. Now, when I think about this, the sending out of the 12, the, the thing that sticks out to me and maybe to you as well is the Lord's authority. Jesus sends them out and he gives them, he gives them authority over evil. He has something, he has this authority as, as, as God, and he gives that authority to them to exercise over demons. Everything they're commanded to do has to be done on the Lord's authority. So when they encounter a demon, they cast him out because Jesus is Lord over the demonic powers. Not because they've been taught this magic formula, right? Not because they've come out with some technique, they do it in his name, by his own authority, because he rules over the demonic power, powers. 
They heal because Jesus is Lord over sickness. They help people who are hurting because Jesus does that, and Jesus has that kind of authority. They proclaim repentance, not because they can forgive, but because Jesus is Lord over sin, and Jesus can forgive sinners. The message isn't theirs, it's the message of Jesus. Their whole ministry is dependent on the authority delegated to them by the Lord himself. None of what they do makes sense unless it is done in the name of Jesus and on his own, by his own authority. Now look at verse 11. What are they supposed to do when they come to a town and they are rejected? Nobody offers them a place to stay. Their message doesn't find a hearing. Jesus tells them they are to shake the dust off their sandals, off their feet, and leave that town. And that act, the symbolic act of leaving, becomes a testimony against that town or that community. Now, they're acting as agents of Jesus here. They're not condemning But they're saying, basically, here's the message of Jesus. If you don't respond, we will let the Lord deal with you. And they back off. And they say, we have done what we're supposed to do as God's servants. We have communicated the message. We've tried to help the sick. We've tried to cast out demons. And if there's no faith here, we're going to leave and let the Lord deal with you. That's authority. They're operating by the authority of Jesus. Every cop movie, every cop show has this one scene. A cop shows up at a business and begins to ask questions. And then the initial reaction is always, is always hostile, right, or indifferent. And then something happens. The cop pulls out a badge, right? And then it becomes Mason Storm, FBI. And all of a sudden, everybody's paying attention, right? Or somebody runs out of the building because they're scared. What happens is the same person asking the same questions to the same people. And yet the badge, the expression of authority, changes everything. It changes the whole dynamic of that conversation. This is what we are supposed to do as Christians. We're not coming as just, I'm just another guy asking a question. No. We're coming to others as emissaries, as ambassadors, as agents of the Lord. The authority isn't ours, it is his, but we are to exercise it. I wonder sometimes why the Lord lets him take a staff. He doesn't let him take much of anything else, just sandals and a staff and the tunic you have, the clothes you have on your back. Why the staff? Well, maybe we can speculate, maybe it's for protection, right? Maybe it just helps you walk better. But maybe it's symbolic. Maybe it is their badge. Maybe they are the shepherds representing the great shepherd of Israel. Maybe they are coming on his authority saying the shepherd is gathering his sheep. We are here to call the sheep. They represent a greater authority. It's not their authority, but they represent someone who has authority over demons, over sickness, over sin. Every disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given that authority. We've all been sent out to share the gospel, to help others, to push against evil. This is all of us. It's not an elite apostolic band of people. It's all disciples. All disciples are sent out to do what Jesus has done. 
We are to share the gospel with someone. And when we do that, we're not sharing our ideas with them. We're communicating the Lord's own message. I was at Panera the other day, and somebody was, was, was saying how his sister is a Christian. She says, I'm a Christian, but she says, but I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. And he asked her, he's also a Christian, he said, but, but do you believe? Do you believe what Jesus says? Do you believe that there's salvation only in Jesus? Because if you do, how can you not tell other people? How can you not share that? That means you either don't believe or you don't love. You don't love people around you. Again, there is an arrogant way to do it, right? But there's also a way to do it on the authority of Jesus himself who sends his people out to share this news of hope. When we confront something dark, something evil, we, we are not doing it with our own moral ideas. It's not our own morality. It's not, I've come up with this really good way to live and now everybody has to do it the way I do it. No. When we confront the darkness, it's the Lord's light that shines into it. We're simply conduits. We're simply people who may bring that into the situation, but it's not ours, it's the Lord's. Which means we can't question that, we can't change that. We bring what the Lord gives us. When we help someone, we, we are extending the healing power of the Lord himself. We're not acting in our own power. We're not acting on our own authority. Because if we are, if we are acting on our own authority, we should rightly feel insecure and intimidated. Because there's lots of authorities out there. But if we act on the authority of Jesus, there's no room for timidity or fear. And those who reject our words and our help ultimately reject Jesus himself, and Jesus will need to deal with them. Not me. I'm not to condemn. I will let Jesus deal with them. It's his authority. He needs to do that, and I will leave them to him. That's the Lord's authority. And I think the, the, the corresponding quality in us, if I believe in the Lord's authority, what kind of servant should I be? I should be a courageous servant. I should have courage. If the Lord has authority, then I should be courageous. Why would I not be courageous if I have the authority of the Lord behind me? Now, secondly, we see the Lord's care. Now, we're jumping over the meat of the sandwich to verse 30. This is the top layer of the bread here. And what we see here is that the 12 return. They have preached and they have healed. They've cast out demons. They're tired. Jesus wants to give them some time to rest. However, a great crowd is following them. They get in the boat, they go to another place, and people find out, people just flock to Jesus and, and his disciples. And by the time the boat reaches the shore, there's a great crowd that's gathered there. And in spite of being tired himself, Jesus begins to teach. Notice that Jesus doesn't begin with addressing their physical needs. He addresses their spiritual needs first. Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he, so he starts shepherding them. He starts guiding them. He starts encouraging them. He starts caring for them. And in the evening, this goes on for some time, in the evening, the apostles realize that everyone is getting hungry. 
And quite reasonably, I think this is a completely reasonable suggestion, they tell Jesus to dismiss the crowd so they could go to the surrounding villages and buy some food for themselves while it is still light. They don't want him to travel in the dark, look for food in the middle of the night. So they're saying, while it's still light, let them go, let them figure out their, their dinner. And Jesus, quite unreasonably, I think, and surprisingly to the disciples, responds with, you give them something to eat. They're saying, Jesus, let them go, let them figure it out on their own. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. The disciples, of course, respond with sarcasm. And they say, you really think we should spend all this money on these people? Should we spend 200 denarii on these people? Should we go? Should we go and, and search for food in all the surrounding villages and spend all our money and then bring all this food for them? Notice the contrast. Jesus, tired, right, looking for a place to rest, sees a crowd and he cares for them. And the disciples, seeing the crowd saying, let them take care of themselves. Let them go. Let them figure out what they are going to eat. Jesus is shepherding the people, and the disciples refuse to. They do not take responsibility for them. They don't take care of their needs. They've just returned from this ministry trip where they had to depend on the Lord's provision, but they're not going to depend on the Lord's provision for anyone else. They may have learned that the Lord provides for them, but they have not learned yet that the Lord can provide through them for others. And so they make a reasonable call. Let them go. Let them figure it out. Let us take care of ourselves. And by the way, you take care of ourselves. So what does Jesus do? He says, what do you have? What are the resources that you have? So we have five loaves, two fish. Jesus takes them, prays over them, blesses them, breaks them, has the disciples distribute the pieces to the groups of fifties and hundreds, and everyone gets enough. Everyone is satisfied. And then 12 baskets of leftovers are gathered after everyone is done. Why 12 baskets? Maybe symbolic of the tribes of Israel, of the 12 apostles, the new kingdom coming, maybe. Or maybe, maybe a subtle rebuke to the disciples. You had nothing, you thought you had nothing to give. Now you personally have ended up with more than you started with. You have a whole basket for each of you, and you thought you had nothing to give to them. Now, this scene is reminiscent of the provision of manna in the wilderness. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, the Lord fed them. Every day, the Lord would just give them enough to eat. And the Lord trained them to expect it and not to hoard it. The Lord trained them to collect just what you need and expect that that would be enough and that will be provided the next day and then you will have enough for the Sabbath. And so it's the same dynamic. The Lord is saying, trust me, trust me. I think this is a corresponding quality here. If we learn about his care, our response would be trust. We should trust him to provide. We should trust him to care for us. A study has been done to determine the loneliest roads in America. Who would wonder about that? I don't know, but somebody crunched the numbers. You know, they've, they've compared uh, the, the annual average daily traffic data for each road in America. 
And the loneliest road in America is State Route 11 in Alaska, stretching for 414 miles from Fairbanks to Dead Horse. If your destination is Dead Horse, I think <laughs> you have to start wondering how many people you're going to see on the way. So only 196 people can be found there on any, any given day on this whole stretch of over 400 miles of this road. Now, the loneliest road in Missouri is Lindbergh Boulevard. No, that's not true. It's, I mean, maybe existentially, but certainly not, not. It's U.S. Route 137, which is, I guess, on the Nebraska state line. And it stretches for 240 miles from Alexandria to Brownsville. There are no lonely roads in God's kingdom. The beauty of, of our walk with Christ, that he is always walking with us, that he is always caring for us, that he himself promises to never leave us and to never forsake us. So whatever you're involved in, whatever your particular journey is, you're not alone. You are never alone. And this is a lesson that the Lord keeps teaching his disciples and keeps teaching us again and again and again. You're going to have enough. I will provide for you. I will care for you. I, I am your good shepherd. You're not going to be in trouble. And so what is our response to that? Trust. We trust. Trust not only for provision for ourselves, but we trust that he will provide through us. This was my personal takeaway from this episode is that I may trust the Lord to provide for me, for my needs, but do I trust the Lord to provide through me? Do I think he will give me enough resources, enough strength, enough wisdom, enough perseverance, enough grit to help others? Or do I say at some point I have nothing to give? Why don't you figure out your own situation on your own? Let's just dismiss the people. But the Lord says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Next is the Lord's glory. The Lord's authority should produce courage. The Lord's care should produce trust. And now look with me at verses 45 through 52. It's another famous episode. The disciples are in the boat, struggling to make headway against the wind. Jesus, who had stayed behind to pray on the mountain, walks on water towards the disciples. This is early morning, probably. And they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. What is the point here? I think most readers look at it as like, hey, look, supernatural stuff. Jesus can walk on water. Yes, Jesus can do a lot of cool stuff, right? What's the point? Why is he doing it here and now? Well, this passage is full of biblical allusions. If you look at what's happening here and you pay attention to the words that Mark is using, to the images he gives us, we know exactly what Jesus is doing. For example, anyone immersed in the Old Testament like the disciples were, would see Jesus walking on water and they probably would recall Job 9, 8, which says that the Lord, that God trampled the waters of the sea. Or Psalm 89.9 that says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So when Jesus calms the storm, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, this is what God does. We can't do it. This is what God does. Jesus is showing his glory. 
as the Lord of heaven and earth. He's exercising his prerogative to control the weather, to go over the water as if he is God, which of course he is. Now look at verse 48. Mark says, he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. What is this all about? That's an echo of a couple passages in Exodus. Exodus 33, 19, 33, 22, 34, 6. Because the same word is used here that is used there. And Mark is deliberate. to sh- He wants us to see the connection. Now, what happened in those passages? The Lord's glory passed by Moses. Do you remember that dramatic moment where Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I have to hide you. I have to hide you, and then I have to pass by you. I can't go directly at you. You can't look directly at me, so I have to pass by you. And even so, you will still experience my glory. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's passing by them, showing his divine glory to them. And just so you have no doubt that what I'm saying is true, there's another clue here. Now, the disciples are terrified. I think they're missing all of it, by the way. I don't think they're seeing any of these connections. And finally, when they look at him and they think he's a ghost, Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Now, it is I, another way to say it would be I am. Another way to translate it would be I am. What is he saying? He's saying God is here. God is here, the God who rules the sea, the God who can calm the storm, the God in all his glory is he saying, I am, I am God. The same name that the Lord revealed to his servant Moses, Jesus is now revealing to his disciples. And of course, they miss it. I mean, we know, right, we are told that in verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, They didn't see it there, but their hearts were hardened, and so they didn't see his glory here either. Fear often prevents us from seeing God's glory. Fear, being consumed with what's in front of us, being worried about the the wind and not making headway, being worried about the storm, prevents us to see what the Lord is revealing about himself. But if we see his glory, if we see Jesus as God, if we see who he is, what should our response be as his servants? It should be worship. It should be worship. We should want to serve him because we are in awe of him. Part of our motivation to follow Jesus, to serve him, is because we genuinely think he is great. We just just can't think any more highly of him. And when his glory is revealed, when he does something in your life and you say, yeah, that's God, that's what he does. When he gives you a glimpse of his, his personality, his character, his power, his wisdom, when you see any of that in your life, don't you want to just follow him? Don't you want to serve him? Because you are in awe of him, you just want to be as close as you can be to him. And finally, let's look at the Lord's grace. So the Lord's authority should produce courage the lord's care should produce trust the lord's glory should produce worship and then finally the lord's grace they didn't see his glory the disciples didn't trust him enough to provide through them 
And so the way Mark structures this passage tells us that the key to our belief, the key to our service, has to be in this weird story of Herod and John the Baptist. This is in the middle of the Mark and sandwich. This is the meat that helps us understand what's going on here. Now, Augustine summarizes this passage as a girl dances, a mother rages, there's a rash swearing in the midst of a luxurious feast and an impious fulfillment of what was sworn. It's a pretty good summary. Lots going on in this passage, right? You have this king who, by the way, he's not really a king. Did you know that? He's a tetrarch. He's been given some authority from Rome, but he's not really a king. He wants to act like a king. So he puts on this, this great feast, the military command, uh, commanders, the nobles, everybody's there. He's trying to impress people. Everybody's drinking, eating too much. And then the entertainment comes. And that's his, I don't know, she's like a, it's very confusing in Herod's family. Who's related to whom, okay? It's a great niece, I think, or somebody like that now. But this girl comes in and dances and so impresses everybody that Herod in this, in a very impulsive moment of saying, I'm such a great king, I can promise anything I want. It's not his kingdom to give, by the way. And he says, ask anything of me, even to half of my kingdom. The girl goes to her mom, and her mom has been angry at John the Baptist for a long time. Now, John has been very clear. Now, John does not lack moral clarity. John has been clear that Herod should not have married Herodias. She was his brother's wife. It was not lawful. It was not right. It was not something he was supposed to do as a king among Jewish people. And Herodias was very angry at John, but Herod was conflicted. He kind of liked John. He liked his moral clarity. He liked his truth-telling. Nobody else in his court would do that to him. And so he would bring him in. He imprisoned him, but he would bring him in, listen to him preach, and then put him back in prison, then bring him in again. But finally, he gets stuck because he promises something. And then the girl comes back and she says, we want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And he's stuck. The king is stuck because he has promised. This is a public promise. If he goes back on his word, he loses face. His reputation is affected, right? And really, in fear of other people, in fear of losing respect of other people, he does what he doesn't want to do. He orders the execution of John the Baptist. Now, that's the story. Why does Mark put it right in between, right? Right in the sandwich between the disciples being sent out and the disciples coming back. Because I think it foreshadows the cross. It foreshadows what's going to happen to their Lord. If their Lord continues to push back on the darkness, if the Lord continues to help hurting people, if the Lord continues to preach the gospel, he too will be executed. And you remember that later in the gospel, Herod gets a chance to intervene and he doesn't. Herod allows Jesus to be crucified. It foreshadows the cross and it contrasts these two kings. King Herod is a king who lives in fear. Fearful of losing his kingdom, fearful of losing his reputation, he will do anything to keep his throne. He is controlled by a foolish oath, manipulated, and actually ends up doing what he doesn't want to do. 
He holds on to his power at the expense of an innocent person. Herod does not believe John deserves to be beheaded, and he does it anyway. Is he the true shepherd of Israel? No. He just does it for himself. But Jesus is a different kind of king. What's the contrast here? Well, Jesus does something similar. He keeps his word, right? He makes an oath of the new covenant. He makes a new covenant with his people, and he keeps that oath at the expense of himself, at the cost of his own life. The innocent person that dies in Jesus' kingdom is Jesus himself. Herod keeps his word at the cost of John. Jesus keeps his word at the cost of his own life. This is grace. This is grace. Jesus doesn't come to enforce his power. He doesn't come to build up his reputation. He doesn't come to show off. All these miracles are meaningful. They're signs. They're telling us something about him. Mark 10, 45, a little bit later in the gospel, tells us, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the kind of king he is. This is the kind of master he is. This is the kind of Lord he is. Now, what kind of servants should we be? If we get it, if we get to the, the meat of the sandwich, right, and we see the contrast, we see the kind of king he is, we see that Jesus came to sacrifice himself for us. Do you know what that means? It means anything he asks of us is on the table. There's no limits. We are absolutely devoted to him. Because he didn't hold anything back from us, now he can ask anything of us, and we should say, yes, master. His grace means that we are to respond to him in loving obedience. Not begrudgingly, but in loving obedience. How can you not serve this kind of king? How can you not serve the king who came to serve you? The king of kings who came to serve you. How can you not serve him? And if he came to give his life for you, to include you into his kingdom, to save you, to liberate you from your demons, to heal your diseases, to proclaim the good news to you and to forgive you. If he has done that for you, why would you not serve him? If he gave his life for you, why would you not give your life for him? So that's the challenge. What kind of servant are you going to be? Are you going to be courageous because of his authority? Are you going to be trusting because of his care? Are you going to worship him because you see his glory? You know who he is. You know he deserves all your praise. And are you going to respond with loving obedience because he is gracious to us?